Big news, big news this morning. Auntie Anne's is giving away free snacks. Today it is National Pretzel Day. So Auntie Anne's is celebrating by offering a free, free, I say, free original or cinnamon sugar pretzel today. Now, you must be a Pretzel Perks Rewards member, but aren't we all? Um, Free pretzels, it says here, are available for order in person, online, or through the app. And in case you didn't already know, there are Auntie Anne's locations in the Lima Mall, the Franklin Park Mall, or the Erie Island Service Plaza on the Ohio Turnpike just east of Fremont. (laughs) So, I know where I'm headed today. Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, because family stability means more than just having a roof over your head, Habitat for Humanity is launching one of its first financial opportunity center programs here in Findlay and Hancock County. We'll get all the details. Plus, Saturday was World Meningitis Day, a critically important medical issue that families can't afford to forget amid all the headlines about that other health issue over the past year. And Katie Linendahl, a frequent technology contributor to this program and others nationally, has been working on an entirely different type of project during quarantine, releasing a new contemporary Christian music album, Jericho Battle Cry. She'll join us with the story behind it. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, April 26th, 2021. Hey, by the way, in addition to... National Pretzel Day. It is also Alien Day, which is celebrating the Alien film franchise. It is held today because one of the planetoids in the Alien films is named LV-426. So, thus, uh, the date 426 is the tie-in there. Alien Day today. It is Autobahn Day. Uh, Not Autobahn Day not a day to drive 150 miles an hour on the interstate. Audubon Day. No, it's Audubon Day. Uh, get Organized Day. Hug a Friend Day. If we're allowed to do that, that won't get you into trouble. Hug a Friend Day if you've been vaccinated. National Help a Horse Day. National Kids and Pets Day. And National Static Cling Day. So, you need reasons to celebrate. There is always... Uh, a reason. This is probably not surprising, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. Many millennials moved back home during the pandemic. New analysis from the Pew Research Center reveals that by July of last year, 52% of 18 to 29 year olds, which equates to 26.6 million adults, were residing with a parent. By July of last year, 52% of millennials were residing with a parent. And I would think that that probably has gone up even further since July of last year. It is the highest number since the Great Depression. A 39-year-old woman who left her Manhattan apartment during the pandemic to move move back in with her family in Queens says, quote, I originally thought I would only stay for a couple of weeks, But with this whole thing still out of control, I just stayed. (laughs) I don't have a quote from uh, this woman's parents, (laughs) but I'm thinking they're they're saying, get out already. Get out. Um, 
They say this is kind of interesting when they move back home, and this is uh, just in general. Millennials, when they move back home, updated every aspect of their childhood bedrooms, making them more modern and nicely decorated. <laughs> Geraldine Anello, the founder of HandyWomen.com, says that there are some easy ways to update your bedroom, uh, organize your bookshelf and get rid of anything you don't want, get a proper desk, instead of one of those little student desks, get a proper desk, take down old posters. <laughs> you probably don't need those posters of New Direction up there on your on your wall. and uh, Or One Direction, or what is that boy band? Are these old in-sync posters? And uh, <laughs> Backstreet Boys, yeah. And number four, invest in a sander so you can sand and stain your furniture, give it uh, fresh life, and match your new color scheme. And again, I can hear parents everywhere saying, hey, don't give them ideas. Don't. <laughs> it's almost like you're telling them they should just stay. Uh, but anyway. Some of the other uh, interesting items here among the first things you need to know to get your Monday morning started. Speaking of the pandemic, uh, in the age of COVID-19, the German language gained more than 1,200 words. Now, German uh, is kind of a strange language anyway. Uh, they've got those long and convoluted words. Um, so it's kind of a fun language anyway, but... Anatol Stefanovich, professor of linguistics at the University of Berlin, says, I can't think of anything, at least since the Second World War, that would have changed the vocabulary as drastically and as quickly as the coronavirus pandemic. The new list of words, and I think we've had the story a couple of weeks ago, some of the new words that were added to the English dictionary, many of which surround the coronavirus, uh, but... This and I put German out of the out of the blue, but twelve hundred words added to the German language because the, the list of new words was compiled by the Leibniz Institute for the German language. Dr. Christine Moores, who works there, says things that do not have names can cause people to fear, feel fear and insecurity. However, if we can talk about things and name them, we can communicate with each other in a more rational way especially in times of crisis. It's important. Uh, so I just have a couple of examples of the 12. I'm going to go through the whole 1,200, obviously. But uh, one of them is a corona is uh, corona angst. And it is just what it seems like. That's the other thing about the German language. If you, if you break it down, they've got all of these crazy words. But generally, if you break them down, you can kind of get an idea of what they're trying to communicate corona angst is just that angst over the coronavirus corona angst and uh let me see if i can get this right because this one will get me in trouble if i mess it up uh schnutenpulli schnutenpulli uh means a mask uh which literally translated means snout sweater <laughs> a sweater for your snout Schnutenpulli. So if you break that down, Schnutenpulli, that I think that we should adopt that word. I mean, there are a number of words in the English language that come from German. And, uh, of course, 
Uh, we have a, a large contingent of uh, German uh, people in this uh, area, German ancestry. So I think we should adopt that word. The Schnutenpulle. <laughs> Make sure that wherever you go today, you wear your Schnutenpulle. <laughs> your snout sweater. I'm going to make sure that I wear my pulley today. Don't leave home without it. This is one of those things that uh, doctors warned about, health experts were concerned about, and it appears that it has come to pass. Childhood vaccination rates uh, are much lower uh, after uh, last year's lockdowns, especially among teenagers. A new study says this raises the risk of measles outbreaks as schools continue to reopen. Researchers analyzed the percentage of kids in the Kaiser Permanente Health System, Southern California, who were completely vaccinated at specific age benchmarks set by the CDC. They found that during lockdown, the, and of course in California, the lockdown has gone on, has been much more widespread and much longer than other places, but they found that during the lockdown, the number of vaccines uh, going to under twos dropped by about 25 percent um but among older children it dropped by more than 80 percent uh lead uh, lead study author bradley ackerson says we saw measles vaccination coverage for 16 month kids declining as time went on that means that all of those kids from 16 months of age to kindergarten those are the kids that are under vaccinated uh, she says when international travel resumes and those kids return to daycares in the coming months, measles outbreaks could become a real threat. So concerned about that. We haven't, uh, I don't think, seen that uh, here in this part of the country. I can't recall any stories like that, but it's uh, something that uh, they're concerned about. And one other note among the first things you need to know this morning... And again, uh, it comes in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, because it seems like everything does. Everything comes back to the coronavirus pandemic. But this is a good news story. This is good news. Despite facing a rough year in 2020, the number of craft breweries in the U.S. was actually up last year. 273 small and independent breweries. Well, I want to say we had 273 open, but the raw number was up 273 small and independent breweries more in 2020 than 2019. Or probably more than that opened up because I'm sure some of them closed, but we had a net gain of 273 small and independent craft breweries. That puts the total number of craft breweries in the U.S., at 8,764. Statistics from the Brewers Association. Uh, breaking down the state of craft brewing by state and per capita finds that California has the most craft breweries, 958. Vermont has the most per capita at 15.4 per 10,000 adults. And Mississippi comes in last place with only 12 craft breweries. Now, in the case of Mississippi, it was only in 2017 when the state government allowed craft breweries to sell their beer on site. So they've 
a little bit behind the curve because they got a later start. But anyway, I thought that was uh, interesting and good news. The craft brewery trend seems to be alive and well despite the pandemic. So there you go. Some of the most uh, interesting and buzzworthy news stories to get your Monday morning started. I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. Governor Mike DeWine spoke on the CBS program Face the Nation yesterday about police reform, saying there should be automatic external investigations into police-involved shootings. Clay Gordon with ONN affiliate WBNS-TV in Columbus has more. DeWine also spoke about actions the nation can take to reshape policing. I think there are things that we all can come together on, Democrat or Republican. Uh, we have a bill in front of the state legislature that we presented, for example, that calls for a lot more uniform police training. We have 900 and some police departments in Ohio. Many states have a lot of small departments. Many times because of resources, they don't get the training they need. DeWine says these should be changes we can all get behind. I'm Clay Gordon. Police in Cleveland say two people gunned down a woman in her vehicle in front of her 13-year-old son on Saturday. Police say the 48-year-old woman was shot in the head and chest. The boy was not hurt. No arrests have been made. Ohio is rolling out a new campaign to curb littering. Officials with the Ohio EPA, Department of Natural Resources, and Department of Transportation say the campaign called A Little Litter is a Big Problem is designed to show Ohioans the impact their litter can have. Research shows that 42% of Ohioans admit to having littered in the past month. Officials say litter impacts many facets of Ohio, including Ohio's transportation system, state parks, beachfronts, and waterways. Eric Brown, ONN News. And I'm Dave James on the Ohio News Network. Jump right into our cover story this morning because family stability means more than just having a roof over your head. Habitat for Humanity has launched one of the first financial opportunity center programs uh, in the country here in Findlay and Hancock County. And uh, joining us this morning uh, from Habitat for Humanity is the uh, 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 is Wendy McCormick, who's, uh, the grand poobah, uh, as it were, at uh, at Habitat, and also Dustin Fuller, who uh, runs the uh, uh, the Financial Opportunity Center program. Uh, Wendy, I want to start with you. This is uh, this is kind of an expansion. You've always done a a component of financial uh, responsibility or financial management within the Habitat program. Absolutely. This yeah. is just an extension of exactly. that. Uh, stabilizing families is what we're all about. Of course, raising roofs and repairing roofs, but uh, this is really about working and partnering with families over the long haul, mm-hmm. um, which many of our families, before they uh, receive a home, uh, are in our program for up to two years. So the financial education, Dave Ramsey Financial Peace, working side by side with them, are all components of, of Habitat. So this is not a new concept, but this, as you said, uh, sort of expands on that and and uh, basically brings the opportunity to even more people. Absolutely. Our board of directors set some strategic goals to really aggressively, how are we going to serve more families? And this mm-hmm. fits right into that. So all under the Habitat umbrella, now it expands to individuals uh, who don't maybe just want to do homeownership, but want to expand on other areas. Of their, of their life or don't necessarily need uh, the habitat uh, go the habitat route for home ownership but need some uh, education that's right this provides one-on-one coaching and mentoring support uh, to work on them uh, whether they want to increase their career goals or uh, decrease debt uh, we'll work with them on whatever life's challenges are so Dustin uh, as Wendy mentioned it's a this is a one-on-one as that was going to be one, one of my questions is, is this a group setting 
something, or how does this uh, work? Can I take us through the program? Give us an overview. The great thing about the LISC model that we're implementing with the Financial Opportunity Center is that it combines individual financial coaching, employment coaching, and income support. So it provides wraparound holistic support that can be individualized because we know support is not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So this is strictly a one-on-one dynamic. Um, typically, we can work with families as well with with both parties. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to figure out where they're at. What do they want to do? Do they want to build their credit, reduce their debt, acquire assets? Do they want to upskill so they can get a better paying job and create a better future for themselves and their families? And the Financial Opportunity Center is there to come alongside them and help them break their goals into practical, obtainable steps as they move forward. So this really uh, runs the gamut, whether it's somebody who just uh, help, I I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet and pay the bills, to someone who has much loftier uh, goals and uh, who's thinking long term. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So how do folks sign up? This is actually a program that was launched last week. So folks can can, uh, sign up and and register for uh, times now. Absolutely. And I would love to see anybody who is interested. Uh, This is a really exciting opportunity, and we want to serve as many people as possible. They can get a hold of us by visiting our website, www.habitatfinley.org. There's an interest form under the FOC section of the website where they can put in their name, identify some things that they're interested in learning more about, and we'll contact them directly. They could also give us a call at 419-429-1400. I am option four. Or they can shoot me an email. And my email address is focmanager at habitatfinley.org. Um, and how long of, uh, of a program, what kind of a commitment are we talking about? Is this uh, you know, a couple of months, a couple of years? I mean, you know, what uh, is the uh, length of the duration of the program? I've worked with FOCs now for the last few years, uh, and it really depends on the individual. I've worked with people for three months, and I've worked with people for more than two years. Again, it comes down to where are they and where do they want to go. I, I notice in the uh, brochure, and I was just uh, uh, looking over this, uh, 140 plus topics. So there are a lot of different ways that this can go depending on uh, an individual's or a family's needs, uh, what they're interested in learning more about, and so on. So again, just speaks to the customization of this. Absolutely. Um, our online courses are available through a partnership that we have, and it provides courses on anything ranging from budgeting to building your credit to creating a professional identity and everything in between. The great thing is many of these courses are compatible with a smartphone. We want to make it as easy as possible and as accessible as possible for people to learn to get that educational component so we can then take that information and what they learned and functionalize that through the individual employment and financial coaching. 
Now, we were mentioning before we went on the air, we were uh, talking, and uh, you said there's always already been uh, quite a response uh, just in the uh, few days since this was launched last week. So, obviously, that's got to uh, make you very happy to, really to see excited. the response. We're really excited. It goes to the partnerships we form, the Community Foundation, the Atomist Board. We want to help uh, individuals who might be um, experiencing substance use in their history now or currently. So, we're partnering with Family Resource Center. We're partnering with the renewed mind. Uh, we're accepting referrals from all our nonprofit colleagues that might be already serving a lot of these clients. Our goal is not to duplicate those services. We'll still refer individuals to those different areas where there's some expertise, but we serve as their accountability partner and that one-on-one person that they can come in and meet with. As we mentioned, uh, this is one of the first uh, such programs uh, in Habitat uh uh, locations, I guess, or habitat chapters, uh, really in the country. There are some in in Ohio, but uh, really, this is a relatively new program, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> the LISC model for the FOC has been around since 2005, but has predominantly focused on r- urban areas, okay. so big cities, Chicago, Houston, etc. Over the course of the last really two years, there's been a push by local initiative support corps to open up these resources to rural communities. So we're the 15th rural community in the country to have the privilege of of housing a financial opportunity center. So really a terrific opportunity for uh, folks locally. And uh, I, I would imagine, does, does this... Um, and Wendy, we were talking about how th- this fits with the overall mission of Habitat for Humanity. I, I would imagine that there uh, may be, you can envision uh, referrals uh, going both ways, that perhaps uh, folks who, who call uh, just to get some financial help may end up getting referred into the Habitat program. We're or, hopeful. And vice versa. Very hopeful. That's why the, our board felt this was such a good fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to grow the number of homes and repairs that we're doing. Uh, we're actually doubling this year's from two homes to four homes, mm-hmm. putting foundations in this week. And um, so if we, we need a pipeline of families that mm-hmm. are in the ready and so this allows them to come in start working with dustin and then if their dream turns into home ownership along the way yeah let's get you into the habitat program boy you talk about changing lives i mean this is uh just another example of uh you can imagine how dramatically lives would be changed well our hope and goal is that we stabilize families to the point where they don't need the services in the community and they're really um giving themselves a hand up which is what we're all about and uh, putting what knowledge we have to work to, to better themselves in, the, in their future. Uh, again, the uh, there's, you can sign up now. Uh, the uh, program is is live and and uh, up and running. We've got the link on our webpage at uh, goodmornings.net uh, to the uh, Habitat website with all of the information uh, about the uh, Financial Opportunity Center program. And again, uh, Wendy McCormick, Dustin Fuller from Habitat for Humanity, Finley and Hancock County. Thanks very much for dropping by. We Thank you. So in case you missed it, Saturday was World Meningitis Day, and we didn't want to let that occasion pass without taking a moment to raise awareness and talk about protecting your family. So from the Health and Medical File this morning, joining us is Alicia Stillman, director of the Emily Stillman Foundation and co-founder of the Meningitis B Action Project. And Alicia, I'm guessing it is not a coincidence that you and the foundation uh, share the same last name. 
Oh, Chris, unfortunately, it is not a coincidence. The foundation was founded in memory of my 19-year-old daughter, who did die from meningitis in 2013. Unfortunately, that is an all-too-common uh, story. Talk a little bit about your uh, experience uh, with this disease, because I'm guessing, like most families who are touched by this, uh, until it happened, you were not aware of just how serious this can become, right? Not only was I not aware how serious it was, I wasn't aware of the vaccinations um, that are now available, and I didn't know a lot about it. So in 2013, my daughter was a student at a, at a small liberal arts college in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And she called home one night with a headache. And my daughter was perfectly healthy. I thought she, perhaps she was coming down with the flu. She thought maybe she was overtired. Unfortunately, um, I told her to take Motrin and that we would talk about it in the morning and see if she feels better. She went to sleep. She woke up a few hours later and she said to her roommates, um, I, I think I should go to the hospital. I, I, my, my head really hurts. She walked into the hospital. She wasn't going planning to die. She was going to be yeah. treated for a headache. Yeah. And within hours, they started to suspect more was going on. I wasn't contacted until the next morning. Uh, where I was called and told to get to the hospital right away that my daughter was quite ill with bacterial meningitis. And I remember saying she can't have bacterial meningitis because my daughter was vaccinated against bacterial meningitis. And they said, come, you know, I'm several hours away and we'll talk about it when you get here. You need to be here. When I got to the hospital, they were preparing my daughter for a craniotomy, and they told me that they needed to give her brain room to expand because the swelling was so substantial that the brain damage would be so severe if she were to survive. Mm. My daughter made it through the surgery but never woke up, and by the next morning, we were told that my daughter was brain dead, mm. and I, I felt, what did I do? Yeah. What did I miss? I promised her I would be her voice. I would figure this out and I would make sure that this doesn't happen in other families. And that's why I created the Emily Stillman Foundation and then in 2017 partnered with the Kimberly Coffee Foundation to create the Meningitis B Action Project. And what we determined is that in 2013 when Emily died and she was protected with the men ACWI vaccine at age 11 and again at age 16, just like it is recommended. But the men B vaccine was not yet available. That didn't get licensed in the United States until 2014, a year too late for my daughter. Yeah. But now the men B vaccine is available. And sadly, some people still don't know about it. Well, I, and that's why I do what I do every day. Yeah, like you said, uh, this can be very confusing because there are uh, all these different types, and there is the one vaccine, and and now we're talking about uh, another vaccine, and we we hear when we hear these stories, quite often it is. Uh, young adults away at college uh, or out on their own for the first time. Why is it that those individuals seem to be at, at higher risk uh, when it comes to contracting meningitis? Certainly not 
the, the risk is not exclusive uh, to those groups, but it does seem right. that they are at, right. uh, at higher risk. Well, when it comes to meningitis B, it can happen at any age, but it is certainly more common among those 16 to 23 year olds. And college students are five times more likely to contract MenB than non-college students, just really because of the way they interact. And it's also really important to note that 100% of all meningococcal disease outbreaks on college campuses in the United States since 2011 are attributed to B, zero group B. Yeah. So we need to protect the students. We need to protect our young people. We need them to understand that it's two completely different vaccines Mm -hmm. that they need to be be fully protected from this disease. So let's talk about those proactive steps uh, that we should be taking to keep ourselves and our loved ones uh, protected. Obviously, first and foremost, make sure that you have both of the vaccines. Absolutely. Because... um, So many people still don't know. You need a series of the ACWI vaccine. Again, it's given at age 11 and a booster dose at 16. And you also need a MenB series. And that is a two-dose series that can be started anywhere between 16 and 23. We need colleges and, and schools to talk about it. We need them to educate their students. We need the physicians and, and all healthcare providers to talk to their patients and parents about men B. We need all that to happen to raise awareness. It is so critical uh, because it, it, it's so sad to hear uh, these types of stories uh, when it's a disease that can be so easily prevented uh, with a vaccine that we uh, ultimately don't want to hear these uh, tragedies happen when we know it can be prevented. And that's the other thing, again, to emphasize that this is nothing to mess around with. Uh, it can be deadly and it can turn deadly very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. Uh, one in five um, will die. One in five of the survivors will have very debilitating, um, debilitating ramifications later on, Um, loss of limbs, blindness, deafness, brain damage, uh, organ, you know, damage. Mm -hmm. It is a very serious disease and it progresses very quickly. Yeah. I know right now, maybe the last thing people want to hear about is yet another vaccine, given everything that has been in the news uh, with the uh, coronavirus, but uh, again, it is so critical uh, to have this information. And with uh, Saturday being World Meningitis Day, want to seize that opportunity to talk about it, raise awareness. Alicia Stillman, again, director of the Emily Stillman Foundation and co-founder of the Meningitis B Action Project. You've got more information uh, online uh, for families, uh, the information they need to know on prevention of this. Yes, the website is meningitisbactionproject.org. And you can follow the project on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Alicia, thanks very much for taking the time sharing your story. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for helping us save lives. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update to the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. This just seems like a bad plan all the way around. As we start in the international file in Nanaimo, Canada, 
I think I've got that right. I'm not familiar. I have to admit that I'm not familiar with the community of Nanaimo, Canada. Police say a man there suffered serious lacerations to his hand after he poured gunpowder into an open flame. <laughs> um, it happened last Wednesday. Police investigated after they got reports of an explosion in someone's backyard. They learned that a group of men were sitting around a fire and decided to pour gunpowder onto the open flame to see what would happen. <laughs> Just to see what would happen. Um, they, uh, the fire ran up the pouring gunpowder into the metal container uh, in which it was being held and then exploded. Gee, who could have seen that coming? Metal shards from the explosion ended up Severely lacerating the man's hand who was holding the container. Police say he was taken to the hospital and later released, so he's going to recover. Police believe, the story goes on to note, police believe that alcohol was a contributing factor to the incident. No kidding. No kidding. But here's the thing. They're not, to, they're not planning to charge any of them. I guess they feel that... <laughs> the, the explosion and the lacerations having to go to the hospital was punishment enough. Either that or it's just not illegal to be stupid in Canada. Firefighters in Syracuse. This is crazy. Firefighters in Syracuse rescued a child from a vending machine at local mall. Syracuse Fire Department said in a Twitter post that they had gotten a call uh, to respond to the mall after a child got stuck. Now... That was all they knew when they responded. But they found that the, that the kid had gotten stuck in a vending machine. They said crews were able to disassemble the machine and remove the child. No injuries were reported. But there's got to be more to this story. That's all that I have. But there's got to be more. How do you end up in a... I mean, I know, I understand kids sometimes, especially little kids, can get curious and get themselves in all kinds of situations, but how do you get yourself stuck inside a vending machine? Watching too many cartoons, that's how. Tennessee man is facing an assault charge after he allegedly struck another man for trying to touch his hamburger. <laughs> it happened at a... Mental health facility in Nashville on Saturday, uh, Bounty Saboriang told Nashville officers that he got mad at the other man for trying to touch his food. The uh, victim reportedly tried to uh, touch Mr. Saboriang's hamburger. Uh, that angered him, so he picked up a chair and struck the victim over the head. Well, that seems very reasonable. You know, Somebody tries to touch your food. What do you expect? <laughs> he did what any reasonable person would do. He picked up a chair and whacked him upside the head with it. The victim reportedly had a cut that needed stitches, but he's going to be okay. Mr. Saboriang uh, is behind bars on a $50,000 bond. Don't touch my food. Touch my hamburger. A Michigan woman... Recovering from a terrifying mistake that could have cost her the sight in one eye. Did you hear about this? Yasidra Williams woke up about 1 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, and she realized she had forgotten to take out her contact lenses when she went to bed. She said, oh, I better do that. 
Her eyes were dry because she had been sleeping with the contacts, so she grabbed what she thought was a small bottle of eye drops from her purse. It actually turned out to be a small bottle of nail glue for, like, fingernails. And when she tried to wipe the glue out of her eye, it sealed her eye shut. Husband called 911 while she poured water on her eye. She was rushed to the hospital. Doctors managed to open her eye and remove her contact lens. And apparently she is going to be okay. But, boy, the moral of the story, turn on the lights. Turn on the lights when you did. Wow, that is scary. And finally, in the broken news this morning, police, police across three states believe that 54-year-old Sandra Henson is responsible for stealing gifts and other valuables from over a dozen couples in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama. Apparently, now, Ms. Henson denies any wrongdoing, but she was spotted on multiple surveillance videos. Uh, One couple told the outlet that they had over $300 stolen from a purse at a wedding this is she's gone from wedding crasher to a grand theft yeah uh the uh they pulled the video from the church and there she was stealing money out of uh, one another pair noticed some cards missing and saw the same woman approach their gift table at their wedding reception Stealing cards with, you know, the money inside and all of that. Uh, she then went through the rest of the uh, the rest of the church prowling around looking for purses and wallets. She went into the different ready rooms and just looked for more things to take. The couple added. Now all of the couples she wronged want to put her antics to an end. However, there is no mention on whether... Uh, Hanson will be charged. I would imagine that uh, she'll be charged with uh, something, probably several somethings, but wow. Three states, a dozen wedding couples with uh, gifts and money stolen during their weddings and wedding receptions. How low do you have to be to steal from someone's wedding reception? There you go. That is today's broken news update, the odd and unusual side of the news. I brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. This message provided by WFIN. So in our daily download this morning, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. Americans, it appears, are not too happy about being in crowds these days. And... Not surprisingly, the pandemic is to blame. A new survey of 2,000 Americans finds that just under two-thirds, 65%, say that they can no longer stand, they can no longer tolerate crowds and will do anything they can 
to avoid standing in lines. 65% say they uh, will do anything they can to avoid standing in lines. Don't stand so close to me, as the song says. And really kind of interesting, the uh, most significant place uh, where they uh, hate lines, and I would not have guessed this, at the airport. At the airport is the most... uh, uh, the biggest hassle the place would, and I suppose it wouldn't have been what I would have expected. I was thought maybe at the supermarket or something like that. But uh, if you think about it, at most uh, other places other than the airport, you can avoid lines. You can go to another checkout line, or you can wait to get in line until there aren't as many people there. You can use self checkout or whatever. Uh, at the airport, it's harder to avoid the lines. So I guess that may be one of the uh, reasons for that. Um. Seven in 10, 72% of people in this uh, survey believe that they are better off having less direct contact with other human beings, uh, especially while traveling. Um, Although, because the crowds at the airport have been smaller, 57% say it's actually now easier to get to the destination than it used to be. But uh, besides that, um, again, the crowds are, uh, are what we... Uh, would love to avoid. Um, the pandemic is changing our tolerance level for minor inconveniences as well. 61% in the poll, and this was uh, connected by one poll, by the way, survey, 2,000 Americans. 61% say they get annoyed easier now than ever before. And a lot of that it has to do with uh, some of the uh, pandemic precautions. For example, uh, eating and drinking outside of the home is a hassle now because we've got masks and all of that. So 54% cited that as a, something that uh, annoys us more than it, it used to. Uh, unlocking our phones, if you're wearing gloves, you know, uh, 49%. Uh, wearing glasses, 48% say wearing glasses is a struggle because of face masks and, and all of that. So just kind of interesting the way... Our patience is running thin because of the pandemic. Calm as you are with your weapons of faith. Put on the armor of God, get on your knees and pray. Well, if you are a regular listener to this program, you know we have talked with uh, Katie Lindendahl a number of times, usually about all things technology and, uh, and things of that nature. Uh, she is with us once again in a whole different subject. You have just released a new Christian contemporary music album. Uh, So what made you decide to do this foray into the world of music? Oh, thank you so much for that kind and generous introduction. It's surprising a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so known for my world in tech and TV, you alluded to, and you know, it's so funny because music has such been an integral part of my life since I was growing up. My dad is a drummer. He's way cooler and way more amazing than I am. <laughs> so I always grew up musically inclined being around my pop. But I have dabbled in music production and just taking vocal lessons for the last 15 years on and off and also in piano and guitar and music theory and music software. And it surprised so many people because I'm really not shared any of this publicly, I guess. Mm -hmm. And Christian music has been so inspiring for me and so invigorating for me over the years. And I wanted to create something that has given me that excitement that so many great artists have provided to me and just put it out there to the world. And it's been a long overdue project, 
But finally, getting to work with so many great producers and musicians for the past two years now and bring this project and this album to light. So you said uh, you've been working on this for a couple of years. So this actually predates the pandemic. Was One of my questions is, you know, to what extent I know for a lot of folks over the past year, they've kind of, uh, you know, spread their wings, taken on something new, tried something different with all of the mm-hmm. extra free time they've had. But this was something I, I'm sure that was accelerated a bit by the uh, pandemic, but also uh, rather unique trying to put this together over the past year. Oh, my goodness. You nailed it. I mean, typically in the past, in my world of technology and what I do in in my TV world, I was on the road about 300 days in a year. And when everything had just shut down and we all of my work really went virtual. So when all that happened, I took all of this time that I wasn't on a plane. And I said, exactly to your point, I'm going to take this time that I'm not traveling and, and focus on make a silver lining out of it and make this album. So really the heart of the production pre and post was during this past year. So it's a great question because we had to, thanks to technology, make things work. Yeah. Uh, and the studios were not open. And thank goodness I'm a nerd because we use technology <laughs> well, to communicate remotely that, that, that's <laughs> and what figure gonna, out how to do this all through software. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. A lot of musicians have been working on their music uh, during the course of the pandemic. Probably a little bit easier for you because you're uh, natively a little bit more attuned to uh, all of the technology that you were using to do this. I had to learn new software programs in the music space that I had never worked with before. Yeah. It was a really intense process to be able to do this, but thank goodness for technology. And <laughs> it, it was intense, but it was awesome. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, the album. It's called Jericho Battle Cry, right? Yes. My debut single in the name of the album, as you just noted, is Jericho Battle Cry. And I'm so pumped to come out the gate with this song because as I like to describe it, it is equal parts Americana and vigor, and scripture, and fortitude, and I come from a very proud military family, and I have tied this song to a nonprofit called Bugles Across America, so 50% of all streams and merchandise will support this veterans nonprofit when anyone purchases or buys any of the merchandise for uh, Jericho Battle Cry, but it's naturally, of course, too, I'd be remiss not to, to note it is based off of the biblical battle of Jericho. So it's an amp up, pump up song. And I just like, one thing I love about Christian contemporary music and people that aren't familiar with that genre, they hear it and they're like, oh, oh, oh okay. Because <laughs> it's got some, it's got some soul in it, you know, it's got some pump up vigor. And I was so proud to come out the gate with Jericho Battle Cry. You mentioned not just the music itself, but the merchandising that ties into it. It's so interesting because a big part of what musicians do, you know, obviously is create merchandise to go along with their their songs. And for me, I'm such a perfectionist. And I was like, I just felt a little uncomfortable, like selling merchandise. But if I did it for the right reasons, I felt like more okay with it. And having 50% of the proceeds go to Bugles Across America, the veteran nonprofit, I was like, all right, we're going to do this, but we're going to do it proper and we're going to do it hot. And I actually worked with, I was working on this design over the past year on St. Michael the Archangel, who is the leader of God's army. And there hasn't really been in my mind's eye a warrior depiction of him. And I have such an affinity to him. So I had created with one of my best designers, the St. Michael the Archangel art. And it's on all the merchandise. And I'm just so proud of it because it's something so cool and trendy to wear. But it has that message that just is all for the right reasons and is just really celebrating good. 
I, I wanted to bring that up because that will certainly resonate with a lot of folks uh, in this area uh, with St. Michael's uh, being the uh, predominant Catholic church uh, in our community. So uh, we definitely wanted to make sure that we highlighted that. So where do folks uh, find the music and the merchandise and all of that? And I'm so glad you said that just briefly. As a devout Catholic, it was I am so on board with St. Michael the Archangel. And for <laughs> anyone listening that is part of that community, shout out to you. I love it. Um, anyone can find the music wherever you download your music, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon Music, wherever you download, please check out Jericho Battle Cry. And of course, all merchandise can be found on my website, which is katielinendahl.com forward slash music. There we go. Uh, Katie Linendahl, the new song is Jericho Battle Cry. Katie, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much. And if you want to check out the song and the swag, you get the link up to Katie's website at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net, and that will put a wraps on our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about at our webpage. Again, goodmornings.net is where you find us online. Coming up tomorrow on the program, after every disaster, there comes a time to analyze the response. So what lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic could help us prevent the next public health crisis, whatever that may be. Until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.